We are on page 37 in the handouts. Chapter 2, we're middle of chapter 2, and the plan is to conclude chapter 2 today. So what have, we, what have we been learning in chapter 2 so far? Let us review briefly. It's like that uh, we're back in the momentum and we kind of have our feet firmly on the ground and we can move on forward. Tanya, the first real premise of Tanya, the launching point of Tanya, is the idea that every single Jew possesses two souls, not one soul. Saying that a Jew possesses one soul is itself a big idea that has to be explained a lot. But Tanya says, no, you got two souls, two absolutely distinct and independent personalities within you. We have an animal soul. Chapter one, we spoke briefly about the animal soul, which is also what we call the natural soul. And the natural soul is really the, are the source of our ego, of our natural desires, instincts, personalities. And then now in chapter two, in this chapter, the author have introduced us to the divine soul, the godly soul. And the godly soul, if you want to understand what the godly soul is, and what's, what its identity is, what its personality is, what its drives are, the godly soul is a piece of God, a literal slice of God within you. And that's your second soul. Now I'll just tell you, in chapter two, in chapter three, which we'll start learning next week, and in chapter four, we're gonna learn a lot about the anatomy, the structure of the soul, how that's how the godly soul works. Because when we understand how it ticks, all the, what all the moving parts are, we can understand how to uh, manipulate it, how to use it properly. But in this chapter, we're just being introduced to it, just to get an idea of what this godly soul is. The godly soul is a piece of God. And the author of is takes us into a pretty deep, into, into a pretty deep area. Thank you, Debbie. <laughs> takes us into a pretty deep uh, you know, conversation and discussion regarding the soul. And there's a question that the author ever asks about the soul. The question is, which is a very simple question, if every single Jew has a piece of God within them, within him or her, then why are not all souls equal? All souls should be equal. What does that mean? That's the question. And the question leads us into an answer, which is not just an answer, it creates a whole perspective and paradigm, which is, there's, there's a lot to chew over that helps us understand our souls, the differences in souls, the relationship between the different souls. And I wanna review it with you on, on page 37. We have a table over here. And I just wanna say, we'll be going through this very briefly. If you've missed last week's class, you could always catch up and review last week's class, and review it in the Tanya, the earlier section of Tanya. It's part two in this handout. The author of it, the author of the Tanya, in helping us to discuss, to understand the evolution, the development of all the souls of the Jewish people, gives us the analogy of a child. How does a child develop? Let's go through this table, and we'll start going through the child the child column, which that is the analogy, the metaphor, and then we'll apply that to the soul as well. 
Okay, the original identity of a child, if you need to kind of trace a child back to its very first point of existence, it is as a drop from the father's brain. What is a child? The very first step of a human being is as one singular, indivisible cell. That's really what it is. And Hasidus and Kabbalah explain that within that cell, there's energy from the father's brain. And that's really the creative spark of life. And not just the creative spark of life, really all of the child's life, its physical life, its mental life, its emotional life, everything is contained within that spark. The spark of creation within that one cell. So the original identity of the, the entirety of the child is a singular drop from the father's brain. And then that singular drop goes through what we call, let's go to the next row, the descent. The descent is the nine months of pregnancy, the gestation during the nine months of pregnancy. And what that does is it breaks down and develops and unravels all the potential within that one singular cell. And what you get after nine months is not one cell, but you get, and let's look at the next row, you get the diversity of the core. Nine months of pregnancy and one singular unified core not only a unified, a indivisible. Unified means it could be many components <clears throat> together as one. Indivisible means you can't even break it up. It's just one, it's one cell. How do you break a cell? It's not two, it's just one. But nine months of pregnancy and you have the diversity of the core, which is a complete body from brain matter to toenails. And what we've discussed last week is the amazing phenomenon that we all take for granted that if you would scrape the DNA of literally the brain, the most sensitive part of the body, the most elevated part of the body, the most powerful and potent part of the body, scrape the DNA of the brain, and then scrape DNA of a hair, of a toenail, this exact same DNA. So you, on the one hand, you have all this tremendous diversity within a body, within a human body, all these different body parts, internal organs, limbs, different systems within a body, and they're so different and diverse, and some are more crude and not that sensitive and not that elevated, like hair and toenails, you know, mm -hmm. and even skin. Yeah, it's a very artificial peripheral layer of the human being. And at the same time, they're really all one. They're all an expression of the same singular thing. Even the nail is an expression, a manifestation from that singular original drop, the original seed, which was the original version of this child. Now let's apply that to the soul. And the Alter Rebbe says, the Alter Rebbe didn't even say this, the Alter Rebbe just kind of, you know, hints to it and taking for granted that we'll all understand it. The Tanya, as I'm sure you realize, is written very, very, uh, very dense, very dense writing, not an extra word. <laughs> Very few words with a tremendous amount of information packed in. So what we have to know about the Jewish people is that the Jewish people constitute one body. All Jews are one organism. And the way to understand the totality of the Jewish people is that each of us are one cell or one part of a body. But we're not different entities. We are really all interconnected. Every single Jew even though today we have millions of Jews alive and throughout all of history, what do you have? Hundreds of millions, billions of Jews altogether. 
we really all begin as one, the same way as a child, even though right now, a human being, I don't know how, you know, I don't know if this is when a baby is born, he's not out here. Alex Green, a pathologist, and I look it up on Google, but he said that a human is 20 to 30 trillion cells, right? 20 to 30 trillion cells, and we all begin as one cell. So let's think about that. Let's say there's trillions of Jews. There aren't trillions of Jews. There's millions of Jews. We all begin as one indivisible original identity, one core, which is, let's start going through the, the, the table again, but let's move on to the column of the soul. The original identity of every single soul is a literal piece from God's supernal wisdom. A child comes from the father's brain. A Jew comes from God's brain as well, God's wisdom. So really, all Jews begin as one unified core. We break up into many different distinct souls only later on, which is the next step, the descent. The descent, which is analogous to pregnancy, is the descent through the four spiritual worlds. There are four spiritual worlds. All of our souls travel through them on their way into a body as part of the soul's development. And that's where all the souls of the Jewish people break up from being a one unified Jewish soul to many Jewish souls. The same way the one cell that is the, the starting point of a child breaks up into many different cells of the human body. And what does that create? Let's look at the next row, the diversity of the core. You have an entire Jewish people. You have the complete body of the Jewish people, all the way from saintly leaders down to the simplest of Jews. So here we have this idea that there are different levels of Jews, different types of Jews. There's one Jew which is associated with, let's say, the, the head. There's another Jew which is his soul is, a, is associated with the hand of the Jewish people. Some are the right hand, some are the left hand of the Jewish people. Some are the right foot, <clears throat> right? Some are the nervous system. Some are the, what, what other systems do we got? The digestive system. The digestive system. Yeah, some are the bones. I'm saying this. This is how it works. Every Jew has their function. You want to know something? Somebody it came up in this past course. Try to remember how. Someone got a little bit worked, like you know. Someone got a little bit taken aback when he heard I said, "Not all souls are the same." And he didn't like that. Like you know, is there? Does that mean like you know? There's 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 a lack of equality between souls. So you know, it wasn't it wasn't the place then to explain it. But we're absolutely saying this. We're saying some souls are very high-level souls. They're like the brain and the heart of the human system. Some souls are like the nails or the feet or the toes, which are lower-level souls. Is that a negative thing? Or is that like a downer? Like, oh, we're not all the same. I wish we were all equal. That would have been better. No, we're nothing without the feet. First of all, we're nothing without the feet, right? Can you imagine if every single cell of the human body wanted to be a head? What would you end up with? <laughs> One, giant head. One giant head. I'm saying no, no, right? That's not really a healthy human being. So a healthy human being is when every cell and every body part is doing its part. So number one, everybody matters. But also, I think it's very empowering. If I would tell you, if we'd be learning Tanya and I would drop you the bombshell it is a bombshell that all of us have the exact same souls do you know what that would mean that would mean that we're all a bunch of failures why because <laughs> there have been much more successful souls around than all of us 
So if you've all had a, the same soul, what is that? That means I'm a, I'm a failure. I obviously didn't succeed as much as I can. But when the Tanya tells you, tells us that we all have different souls, it's actually very empowering. You are who you are. And don't compare yourself to somebody else. Somebody else is more successful in a certain area in getting in touch with their soul, developing their soul. They have a different soul than you, different capabilities. What fingers could do is not what, uh, is not what feet could do. Feet could dance. Hands write and draw. It's a, it's, a, it's a different art. Every body part is something else. So it's a very powerful idea over here, just the implication of this idea. Every Jew, there's a lot of implications. The idea that we're all connected. Every single Jew is one. In fact, the, the Talmud, the Talmud uses this idea to explain the commandment to never be vengeful. Never, never, you should never be, you, never, you should never act in revenge towards another Jew. The Talmud says, why not? What's the logic of that commandment? To do revenge is a, you know, Shelley's asking them, why are souls considered higher or lower? Higher and lower is not saying that one soul is better or worse. Rather, what it's saying is that some souls are more powerful and some are less powerful. Higher meaning it's a more elevated, more spiritually potent. Lower meaning it's not as spiritually powerful. But it doesn't mean that it's better or worse. It just means it's a different function. So Thomas says like this. So Thomas says, why shouldn't you ever be vengeful? It's very simple. Can you imagine? This is the, this is the exact analogy that Talmud gives. Can you imagine if the right hand gets upset at the left hand and starts beating up the left hand? What would you say to the right hand? Idiot, you're hurting yourself. You, you're, you're hurting yourself. Because <laughs> when you when your left hand suffers, your right hand, you know, your right hand is also suffering. So why should you never act in revenge towards another Jew? Who do you think you're hurting? <laughs> you're hurting yourself. So we see this idea of the of we're all one unit. Okay, this basically brings us to where we're up to in Tanya right now. We have this analogy that helps us understand that there's a development of souls. But here's a key idea. Here's the key idea. Oh, Marshall's getting is getting me in trouble. Uh, Marshall, I'll tell you something. No, don't worry, Marshall. I don't mean that in a. In a <laughs> I mean, as a joke. Please continue asking questions. I'll tell you something, Marshall, right now. Let me bring up Marshall's question. Everybody over here can see as well. If God give Gentiles the same soul system, do Jews have different souls? Okay, let me first answer your second question. Do Jews have different souls? Absolutely. And to the point I just told Shelley earlier, we're not saying better or worse, right? That's not the point. That's just maybe a separate discussion. Um, but it's, it's, there's absolutely a unique identity of a Jewish soul. Did God give Gentiles the same soul system to the Gentiles as Jews? My answer would be, I don't know. The Tanya tells us the structure of Jewish souls. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm not saying it's not a valid question. I wonder. I don't know. But we are talking over here about a unit of, the, of, the, of all Jewish souls. And all Jewish souls, what we're saying is really, are really one organism. But here's a very key idea. Just like in a body. And this brings us to where we are today. Just like in a body. If I present to you a brain and a nail. And I'll describe to you what a brain is capable of and what a brain does and the type of activity going on in the brain. I'm just saying the most powerful machine in all of existence. 
right? Science right. can't replicate a brain. I'm saying it's unbelievable. Literally the most powerful force in all of existence is the human brain. And then I'll show you a toenail. And I'll describe to you what a toenail is capable of and what its function is in the human being. What would you say? And I'll say, is there any comparison, any connection? There's literally no connection. How can you begin to compare? And at the same time, if you just scrape the DNA, or if you look a little bit under the surface at, at the identity, right, what would you get? Exact same DNA. Exact same DNA. And the DNA won't be more powerful in the brain than in the nail. It's exact same genetic code. So if you take the soul of Moses, Moses, and you take our souls, but we're all, we're all pretty high-level souls. I know Joey thinks he's a toenail soul, by the way. <laughs> I adamantly disagree. <laughs> no, we, we really don't know. We really don't know what our soul levels are. If you take, just imagine in your mind the lowest level Jew. You know, whatever would make, who, who are we to judge and decide who's low? I don't know. But there obviously is, objectively, the lowest level soul of a Jew that exists somewhere in existence. A Jew with the lowest level soul. There are souls like the toenail soul. And if you compare Moses' soul with this with this true soul. Well, what makes that soul bad? Not bad. bad Not bad. Not bad. Lower level. Lower level. Just very spiritually, uh, uh, you know, very not powerful. Mm -hmm. Very weak spiritually. And I would compare to, I'll get to your question in a second, Shelley. If I, if I would present to you both souls, here's Moses' soul. Here's what Moses' soul is capable of. And here's this soul. Lowest level soul. You'd say there's no, there's no, there's, there's no comparison. There's no connection. What the Tanya is saying is if you could scrape the, the DNA of Moses' soul, and you could scrape the DNA of each and one of our souls, of even the lowest soul, you'd find the exact same DNA, the same identity, which is it's a piece of God. So that's the paradox. On the one hand, every soul is equally a piece of God, but yet different souls, the way that piece of God is manifest, some are more powerful, some are less powerful, the same way the brain, the cells of the brain are tremendously more powerful. The cells of the, of the nail are, are, are very weak compared. Yes. You say we all have different purposes because of that. Yes, we all have different purposes. There's a beautiful Hasidic story, such a lovely story, could be some of you are familiar with it, about a great Hasidic master, a contemporary actually of the author Rebbe, a very good friend of his. His name was Rabbi Zusha, Rabbi Zusha of Anipoli. Anipoli is where he lived. I think it's in Ukraine. Anipol. Is it being bombed these days? Anipol? Probably. Yeah. Anipol, yeah. Anipoli. City in Ukraine. Anipoli, yeah, yeah. That's right. By the way, I met a woman here, lives in Nuvori Lok. She's, uh, she says in her family have a tradition that they're descendants of Rabbi Zusha of Anipoli. Well, that's so interesting. Yeah. Could we some of you know her? Know her. <laughs> okay. Um, some of you do actually. I know that. Okay. Anyways. Srebi Zusha says, Srebi Zusha was a very wonderful character, unbelievably warm Jew. And he had a lot of, uh, had a lot of sayings that, that stuck. He once says, when I go to heaven, I'm not scared at all when they're going to ask me, why weren't you like Moses? I'm not scared of that type of question. And I'm not scared when they're going to ask me, why weren't you like Abraham? But boy, am I freaked out that they're going to ask me, why weren't you like Zusha? Why weren't you you? None of us have to be a Moses, because we don't have Moses' soul, but each of us have our own identity. 
So yeah, each of us have our own different identity. And Shelly, to your question over here, does that mean that we have different capacities to be spiritual? Yes, yeah, all of us have different struggles, have different strengths, have different weaknesses, and our spiritual powers are gonna manifest differently. Our gift, what our soul is capable of doing is very different. The same way what our fingers could do and what every single finger is capable of is very different. Every finger has its own talent. You write with this finger, you, you have precision with a different finger. Every, every body part is unique. Jews are very different, very unique. Okay, there's one more, one more question over here. Beth wants to know, does the soul evolve into different body parts? Do you want to explain that question? <clears throat> do souls evolve? Do they evolve into, into different levels, I suppose? Um, or uh, if you're a, a toenail, are you, is your soul always a toenail? Or does your soul, as you go from life to life, does it, do you evolve into a different? Oh, so in, in different lives, that's that, that's already a different question. You know, what happens in a different lifestyle, in a different lifetime? But during a, a, sing, a particular lifetime, I don't believe souls are capable of changing. Okay. Way, you know, once, once a cell becomes a part of our body, it stays there, right? The, 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 unless you do plastic surgery, right? Is there spiritual plastic surgery? You take a soul and move it into a different, I don't know. All right. But that doesn't mean that we can't develop the soul and get more in touch with the soul and we bring out the depth of the soul. Souls are very, very uh, complex and deep, deep entities. This brings us right now to part three of chapter two on page 37. And the Alcrib is now going to teach us that now that we understand this, this concept, that all Jews are one unit. And every single Jew, our, each of our souls, so to speak, represents a different part of the body. Now we can understand what the role of Jewish leaders are. What the role of a Jewish leader is. You know, Jewish leaders <laughs> is a part of how God created the structure of the Jewish people. At the very moment where God decided he's going to take the Jews as his own people out of Egypt, that's where it all begins. God does that from the very first moment. It begins with a Jewish leader, which is Moses. And ever since then, part of the structure, part of the system of the Jewish people, that there's always a leader uh, within all times that lead the Jewish people. And of course, what's a Jewish leader? Is every scholar a leader? Is every pulpit rabbi a leader? Is every fundraiser a leader? So yeah, there's all there's many different types of leaders, right? You have a communal leader, you have this type of leader. Okay. So Moses. What is the title that we give to Moses? Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. If you look in the Torah, that's and ever since then, we call Moses Moshe Rabbeinu. So Moshe means Moses. What does Rabbeinu mean? Our teacher. Teacher. Our teacher. Rabbeinu is really, uh, it's, there's Rabbi, that means our teacher, and Nu means ours in Hebrew. Nun Vav is new ours. It's our teacher, our Rebbe, and that's really where the word Rabbi comes from. So the first Rebbe was Moses. That's really what it means, a Rebbe. 
Okay, what does Rebbe mean? It's an important word. <laughs> or get this is the title. This is actually the only title we give to our to our top leader. What does that even mean? What are the powers? What makes this person a Rebbe? What do you, no, so okay, so let's, one thing at a time. To teach. So it can mean to teach. At the most basic level, that's what it means. So Rashi, Rashi in the Torah, asks this question. What does the word Rabbeinu mean? What does, what does Rebbe mean? Just, what, you know, what's the definition in the dictionary books? <clears throat> Rashi says like this. The word Rebbe is an acronym. The word Rebbe has three letters in it. Resh, Bet, and Yud. Rebbe. And the word Rebbe is really a combination of three words. Rosh, B'nai, Yisrael. What does Rosh mean? Dead. The head. Oh, head of the Jewish people. So head, you could think of it, oh, like the head as in like the leader. No, no, it's more literal than that. The literal head of the Jewish body. What have we been discussing over here? All Jewish souls form one body. What's the head of that body? That's the leader. What is a head to a human being? That's exactly what a head is to the Jewish people. <clears throat> There's a letter you should know from the Rebbe about this. <laughs> it's funny, the Rebbe writing about this. The Rebbe wrote this before he even assumed leadership, so he was still a private citizen. It was right after his father-in-law passed away. And when his father-in-law passed away, the Chabad community in particular, but in general, the Jewish community in America felt very at loss. You know, they lost a very important Jewish leader. And the Rebbe wrote a letter, and the Rebbe says, many people wonder, what is a Rebbe? And the Rebbe says, if you start trying to think of, uh, of, of different definitions and, 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 and achievements of what a Rebbe is, you come to so many different examples. A great scholar, maybe even a miracle worker, somebody who's very holy. And the Rebbe says it's true. All of these definitions do bring out one aspect of what the Rebbe is and was, but none of these truly define what a Rebbe is. What is the Rebbe? It's what Rashi tells us. The head of the Jewish people. Let's think about all of our diverse body parts within our own bodies. What is the head to our body? What is the relationship between my finger, my toe, and my head? The head directs the rest of them. No more than direct. So in other words, let's think like this. Important. How does the finger know what to do? Or in other words, how does the finger know it's a finger? The cup. The cup, the head. The head tells every cell of the body, this is who you are. Mm. This is your function. Mm. That's number one. What's number two? What else does the head do? <coughs> Makes decisions or contemplates itself, reflects on itself. It reflects. Wisdom. It gives wisdom. Direction. Direction, maybe that's similar to what I'll tell you something else. This, this is, I think, this is part of what you said earlier, uh, Stuart. Number one, it gives every body part its sense of identity, or in the words of Kabbalah, it nourishes. It literally nourishes every body part. Right, the moment the body part is severed from mm -hmm. the head, it's dead. Our fingers are alive. Every part of our body is alive because of the head. The head is literally what gives it life and functionality and purpose. Of course, the heart is also very important, but it's the head. It's, you know, ultimately, it's the head. Even controlling the heart is the head. That's number one. It gives it life. It gives it functionality. And number two, it unifies the body. 
we look at ourselves and I don't say, you know what I am? Like a Mr. Potato Head. I've got the ears and I've got nose, I've got a mouth. We don't look at ourselves. We don't look at ourselves as a composite of hundreds and hundreds, of thousands of different moving parts and pieces. We look at ourselves as one unified, one unified force. The head creates that unity. We have, right, our bodies become a working unified operation, a unified structure through the head. One last point. One last point. A nail. A nail, right? Our nails, our toenails, it's first, the first version, the earliest form that this nail was, was a drop from the father's brain. And now what is it? A lousy nail. <laughs> and it doesn't resemble much of its original identity. And really every body part is a downgrade from its original identity and a loss of that identity. Yeah, if you could look and, and if you could dig in, you could find the original DNA. Oh, and then you'll see really it's the father's brain. But in manifest form, if you look at it on surface level, it lost that identity. There's only one part of the body that never lost its core identity, which is the brain. We spoke about this a little bit more in length last week. What's the first thing to develop in pregnancy? Literally within, within, within days, three days, I believe, is the brain. The first thing that fires up in this, de in this uh, developing embryo, or is it even called an embryo? It's called something else first. What was that? <laughs> a zygote? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Right, that's the reformer. The first thing are, is the nervous system, is the brain's signals. The, I mean, I think you said that it was the the brain stem, or, or... that, and that that eventually becomes you right. Even before the brain is like the spot is the is the is the nerve system within the spinal cord. Yeah. But isn't that also the the last thing when the body decays, the one thing that is left that when Mashiach comes? That's some loose. Is oh, that the okay. brain? I don't know. I thought I it was know. somewhere in the back of the head. Okay. The neural tube. It's great having doctors here. I gotta say. <laughs> They got all the answers, though. Listen, whenever we give these types of uh, analogies, we got to, we got to. <laughs> so a brain, why is the brain the most powerful part of the body? And why does the brain have the power to bring the whole body together? Because the brain is the purest version of the entire body. And therefore, it could give that sense of identity to the entire body. Which on a literal level is, is a little bit. You know, we don't really think of our body that way, but spiritually that becomes very important. How could we, which are downgraded souls, and this is not meant to put us down, it's the reality. Yes, our DNA is a piece of God, but we went through this process, the descent through the four worlds, and our, our souls developed into something other than a pure piece of God's wisdom. How are we capable of really getting in touch with the divinity within ourselves? That is the function of the head of the Jewish people. The Moses of the Jewish people, the head of the Jewish people can give 
a sense of identity to every single Jew and say, don't look at yourself as a toenail, you, have, you are a piece of God. Why? In, or in other words, a Rebbe is the purest version of yourself. And when you see the soul of a Rebbe, when your soul gets in touch with the soul of a Rebbe, your soul sees its true identity. And it unleashes the power within a soul. And that becomes a spiritual function of the head of the Jewish people. And this is why the Talmud says, and the Zohar says this, that every generation needs the Moses of that generation. A soul can't function without a leader. It's impossible. Not because we're incapable of leading ourselves. Not because we don't have a GPS to make our way through the 40 years in the desert. That's not what really the Moses is about. Moses gives, allows every soul to get in touch with its own identity because the soul of the tzaddik, of the Rebbe, is the purest version of our souls ourselves. And, and then, of course, you have also the other elements of the head. The Moses, the leader, the Rebbe, gives every Jew their sense of identity, their sense of purpose. It creates Jewish unity, that all Jews work together, that we are a force that can answer the calls, the call of the hour. Let's read. All right, let's finally read some time. Page 37 on the bottom. Part 3, a leader soul. This constant bond between all souls, even of the lowest level, with their original source, is possible. How could we still be connected with God? It's possible because the souls of the simple folk are nurtured and energized from the souls of the tzaddikim, the spiritual giants, and the saintly scholars, which are the heads of the Jewish people, right? Look at that wording, the heads. It's clearly in the Torah, the rush, the rosh, the heads of the Jewish people in their generation. Every generation needs the heads, which serve to be exactly what the head is to us. And that gives every soul the identity, the gift of understanding who they truly are. And this is parallel to the nail that constantly receives its nourishment from the brain. That's, that's really what a tzaddik is, what a rebbe is. Right? Many times people would ask, you know, what's, what's this idea that you have a rebbe and that, uh, and that you're into this rebbe? I have this picture right here on the... What's a rebbe? And sometimes it's a little bit hard to define, you know, like what is it? Just God decided to give us good, charismatic, great leaders, selfless leaders to teach us, take good care of us. What's... If you really want to understand what a rebbe is, what a Moses is, what was Mordechai in his generation? There's a beautiful piece of Talmud. The Talmud goes through a few generations and says, Joshua in his generation was like Moses in his generation. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in his generation was like Moses in his generation. Mordechai in his generation was like Moses in his generation. Talmud's trying to say, there's really Moses lives in every single generation. You need a Moses. Jewish people can't live without a Moses. You'd always just be a Rebbe. So who's the first Rebbe? Moses. And uh, then now we understand why. A Jew needs it. A, a, for a Jew's soul to properly be activated, for a Jew to be able to connect with God. By the way, what does it mean to connect with God? It doesn't mean to connect with something outside of us, out there. What does it mean to connect with God? It's really connecting more with yourself. God is within you. So when we get more in touch with ourselves, get more in touch with our souls, that is called connecting with God. That, that's where God is. God is inside. 
Connect with God is actually a very personal journey. It's a very, you're not going somewhere else to try to find God. Okay, that's the concept. This is what a leader is. Let's continue reading, page 38. And now that we know this concept of what the role of a leader is, the author says now we can unravel and demystify a very even troubling statement in the Talmud. There's a piece of Talmud, which if you look at it on the surface, is quite troubling. Quite troubling. Let's read. Top page 38. This explains a teaching of our sages of blessed memory in the Talmud on the verse. There's a verse in the Torah and attach yourself to him. Talmud says like this. The Torah says there's a mitzvah in the Torah. The Hebrew is a Jew should connect with God. The Talmud asks a very simple question. Sounds like a wonderful concept. How do you do it? <laughs> How do you connect with a God that you can see and hear and touch and feel and smell? Oh, yeah. A little bit difficult to connect with something which is totally outside of your senses. So Talmud gives us a very simple piece of advice. Let's read. That anyone who attaches himself to a scholar is considered by the Torah to have attached himself to the divine presence literally. You want to connect to God? Make a connection with the great saintly scholars and leaders and tzaddikim of your generation. One second. Does that, does that make sense? One second. I want, connect, I want to connect with God. What are you sending me to people for? A great leader that's connecting to God? How do, how do we make any sense of that? What's the answer? It's very simple. What does it mean to connect with God? To connect with your own soul. How do you find the true identity of your soul? You need, a, you need your head for that. For a toenail to, so to speak, get in touch with who it really is. A piece of the Father. I belong to this body, which is a piece of the Father. Oh, Dr. Joel Lieb, you are my scholar. We got to talk about that. We got to talk about that. You need, the only way for you to connect with the divinity within your own soul is with the touch of the, of the head. Without the head, there's no identity. Let's continue reading. In the words of the author, because by attaching themselves to scholars, the souls of the simple folk become consciously connected with their original identity and root, which is the supernal wisdom of God. You want to get in touch with God? You want to get in touch with your own soul? You need to have the best version of your own soul to look at and allow your soul to see its own potential, its own identity. And by the way, it's so interesting. You know, thousands upon thousands of people met the Rebbe and interacted with the Rebbe. And the Rebbe had a very, had a very big power. You know, if we want to talk about our generation, the Rebbe, the Rebbe had an unbelievable power which even like seems very super supernatural. The Rebbe really touched people. And in a way which is a little bit, it's mysterious. It's, it's, it's beyond what you can logically explain. The Rebbe touched certain people just by a look, just by a quick word. You know, for example, towards the end of the Rebbe's life, the Rebbe in general made himself tremendously accessible to people. Anybody want to be there? The Rebbe just gave of himself. The Rebbe never said no to seeing people. And they were always found creative ways to meet people, even when the demand was uh, mm -hmm. was just uh, impossible for them to, be, to even be able to handle. And towards the end of his life, everyone would do something called Sunday dollars. Every single Sunday, the day when people had the most flexibility of time, 
The Rebbe would pray in the morning. The Rebbe's morning service was 10 a.m. It finish 10.45, 11 a.m. About 11 a.m., the Rebbe was standing in the hallway outside of his office, uh, greeting anybody who wanted to see him for dollars. Men, women, children, Jew, non-Jew, religious, it didn't matter. There was, there was no, there was no, all you had to do was wait online. As long as you wanted to wait online, you could see the Rebbe. And it was a long line, so the line would move quickly. You didn't really have a time, you didn't really have the chance to really speak with the Rebbe much. Usually it was a very quick two or three seconds. You saw the Rebbe and you moved on. Sometimes a little bit more of a conversation. You could tell the Rebbe something very quickly. Usually that was it. You didn't have much of a chance to interact with the Rebbe. <clears throat> and it's such an interesting phenomenon. People's, people were very moved just by meeting the Rebbe once. You know, somebody can, somebody can meet the Rebbe and where if they meet the Rebbe, they'll say, you know what, I, I want to go buy myself to film. I want to put on film. One second. Did the Rebbe tell this person to put on film? No. <laughs> the Rebbe gave him a dollar for charity and said blessings and success. That was the Rebbe's, that's what the Rebbe would always say. Blessings and success. That's the whole thing. Now you want to change your life all of a sudden? It's a mystical phenomenon. It's a spiritual phenomenon. It's the soul of the head getting in touch with the soul of another body part. I have a question. Sure. Attach ourselves to someone, the, the Rebbe, whoever is that person in our generation. That's great. He's in New York. What about how do we do it? How do we? Do oh. It? How do you connect? What's the art of connecting with a with a uh, with a Rebbe? First of all, that's that's a uh, that's a very good question. How do you do it? Practically speaking. Practically speaking, it's in any way that you could really find a meaningful way to do it. Any way that you could kind of connect a, a connection between your soul and the Rebbe's soul is, is very important. So no, the number one thing, which is what the Rebbe would always tell the Chassidim to do, especially in, you know, before the Rebbe became Rebbe, there was a whole year where, the, where his father-in-law is Chassidim and the generation of his father-in-law you know, once his father-in-law passed away, how do we connect with the Rebbe after he passed away? And then we'd say, you have to go to his resting place. Because the soul of the tzaddik is there at the kever, at the ohel, at the resting place. And when you go there, that's a place for your souls to meet. Number two is learning, digesting the teachings of the Rebbe. Why? When you digest the teachings, the teachings contain the energy of the soul. That's another way to, to bridge the connection. <clears throat> um, so those 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 probably be two of the most important ways. But, you know the, that that's why for me I make it a priority. A few times a year I need to go to New York and visit the Rebbe's. Oh, it's not possible. It's not possible for everybody. <clears throat> right? It's it's still possible. We should definitely do it. <laughs> we should definitely go. But um, any any way that we can do it connect an active connection where, the, where we bring the Rebbe's soul into our lives and we can mm -hmm. create that bond, a soul bond. Let's continue reading, right? We're up to the paragraph and. And once connected with supernal wisdom, they're connected to God himself since he and his wisdom are one and he is the power to know, etc. Okay, this paragraph is a little bit deep. This paragraph goes back to earlier in the chapter. The author have explained this already gets a little bit philosophical. That once you connect with God's wisdom, you really connect with God's essence, with God himself, because God and his wisdom are one. Okay, but this is already a philosophical mm -hmm. idea. Let's, let's not get lost in that. The point is, for a Jew to get connected 
with the purest version of who we are. Who am I? I'm a piece of God. The tzaddik is what activates that power, that conscious connection, and allows us to truly be in touch with the true identity of our soul. A Jew disconnected from a Rebbe is dangerous. Could a body part live without a brain? It's impossible. You can't live without a, without a leader. And what the author is going to say now is whether you know it or not, if you're a Jew who's alive, your soul is automatically connected with the Rebbe. Even if you rebel, even if you, even if you try getting away from it, you can't sever that connection, which makes it very powerful. But you, again, you see this in the Rebbe's life. If the Rebbe was in touch with Jews and knew about Jews who didn't even know about the Rebbe. And sometimes with absolute prophetic vision. Um, I said the story this morning. I forgot to look it up. I'll send you all a link to the story. How much time do we have? I'll tell you the story soon. Okay, let's first, I want to get to the end of the chapter and then I'll share with you a story. So last, last paragraph of this section. And as for those, which is a parenthesis, the author just has to explain this. And as for those who sin and rebel against the scholars, they're actively not connected. The author of it says their souls are still nourished from the souls of the scholars, but indirectly so, in an indirect fashion, which in the language of Kabbalah is called from behind. The Hebrew word is acharayim, so to speak. Okay. This idea, concept of, 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 of a connection and the nourishment, but on the level of acharayim in an indirect way, we'll talk about that in a later chapter of Tanya. It's a very big concept in, in the language of Hasidus, the language of Kabbalah, the language of Jewish mysticism. But let's not get lost in that right now. But the basic idea is every single Jew is, is, has a connection with a scholar because it's impossible to not. A soul can't function without being connected with the with 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 the with the tzaddik, with the rebbe of his generation. Not my fault. But it could be in a strong way, it could be in a powerful way, it could be in an indirect way. Okay, Linda, that's a good question. We'll talk about that soon. Okay, Doctor Lieb has a good question. How do you know which rebbe is the is the one to follow? And Doctor Lieb says you are my scholar. Doctor Lieb, I don't know if I'm. If I'm qualified to be your to be your rebbe, but we have a rebbe. That's the good news. You know, usually usually God makes it quite apparent who the leader of the generation is, and uh, usually we don't have to do much guesswork, whether it's Moses or Joshua or Mordechai. And these leaders make themselves selflessly available to us. And there's another question which could which could discuss them. At least I'll put it on the table. So what happens with the rebbe after his passing? Does that sever the connection? Does that make it inaccessible? His soul is still around. The answer is souls don't die. And what makes that leader <clears throat> connected with, with the souls of his generation is not just that he is physically alive, but that his soul is associated with the souls of that generation. Moses was the leader of all the Jewish people, but at the end of the day, he was the leader for his times. And those souls are always connected with Moses' souls. And even when they go to, when, even, when they, even when they pass on, those souls are always are going to be connected with Moses. And the Jews of the generation of Mordechai, even after their passing, is a connection. This is one unit of the Jewish body. And even after the passing, if you're part of that unit, which these things, we don't, you know, we don't exactly when the era ends and begins. But as long as you're part of that unit, this leader is your leader. 
and forever and ever. You're part of that one generational entity, one unit. But you yourself are probably not of that generation for the ready. That's the question. So how do you how do you define generations? So he, I would say his presence, where he's actually communicating, at least in a corporeal way, he died before you were born. I'm thinking. No, I was alive, but uh, but I hear your point. Yeah. So how do you how do you how do you define? Okay, you know what? We have four minutes left. Right. I want to read the last part of this chapter, which is a very simple concept. <clears throat> I'll tell you something very interesting. Tanya has two versions. There's two editions of Tanya. There is the initial draft, and there's a final, final version. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Tanya was first published in manuscript form. It wasn't a book. It was booklets, which was manuscripts. We, mm -hmm. we learned about this at the very beginning when we learned the introduction of Tanya. After many, many years of Tanya kind of just traveling around uh, unofficially in manuscript form, the author of it decided it's time to publish Tanya, edited the text rigorously, I mean, didn't just copy edit it. You know, really, we rewrote really the whole book, and there are some significant additions or changes. One of the biggest significant changes is in chapter two. In the original version of Tanya, chapter two ended right here. In the final version of Tanya, the author added this last section, uh, which is like an end note to this whole chapter. And as you see, the, this part of Tanya is called "Who Determines Your Soul Quality?" Who decided what part of the Jewish body I am? So none of, again, none of us know what part of our body is. The Reb, only the Rebbe knows what our, what our body part is. If we're a nose, if we're a finger, <laughs> if we're the digestive system, right? Are we a bone? Are we flesh? You know, we, you know, what is it? Who determines that? And from a scholarly perspective, it's actually a difficult question to answer. Is God, does God determine it? Or is there maybe some human determination as well? And what the author was going to get to is that God is the exclusive decision maker, deliberator, in choosing what your soul is. God plans out, we are in the Jewish body, you are going to function. What your identity is going to be. That's basically the whole section of Tanya. Let's read it inside. The author begins this discussion, this little mini discussion of the chapter, by quoting a piece from Kabbalah, from Jewish mysticism. Let's read Bottom of page 38. It is written in the Zohar and in the Zohar Chadash. And if you want to look it up, you could open up that book and turn to page 11a, and you could read this in the source. It says like this. The main determining factor of the soul's quality is the sanctity during the actual sexual union, which the Zohar says. Simple folk usually fail to do, etc., which explains why their children are also simple, quote-unquote, possessing ordinary souls. So the Zohar says that the intent and the sanctity, the energy and the intent that the father and mother have during the sexual union, which will create this child, that is what determines the level of the soul. The holier that moment is, the holier the child's going to be. The more crude and, uh, you know, a, a less selfless and holy and, and beautiful that moment is, the lower level quality the child's going to be. So the author is going to say like this. Let's read. Page 39. The author is going to say that's true, but you got to know what you're talking about. Let's read over here. However, this concept is not referring to the soul itself. 
but rather to a specific component of the soul. You see, we're holding page 39. Yeah. Every soul, without exception, possesses a garment. In the language of Kabbalah, every soul has something called a garment. It is this garment that is derived essentially from the father's, from his father's and mother's nefesh. So the parents and the holiness, the sanctity within the union of the parents that created this child, that creates the garment for the soul, not the soul itself. Okay, what's the garment? Let's continue reading. The, this garment, the garment, is a kind of spiritual interface through which the divine soul interacts and interfaces with the world around it. It's like an outer layer of the soul. There's a soul, and then there's an outer layer of the soul through which the soul interacts and interfaces with all of reality outside of the soul. And the author says, all the mitzvos that the soul does are performed through this garment, and even the blessings that flow to the person from heaven are all given through this garment. So you have the soul, and the soul is one idea, and then you have a garment, and the soul interacts and is activated through this garment. Let's continue. So if the parents sanctify themselves during the conception, they will draw down a holy garment for the soul of their child. Even if it is a very lofty soul, it still needs the father's and mother's sacred intent during conception for the purpose of its garment. So it's really two separate things. There's the level of the soul, there's the level of the garment. The two totally separate things. Some people have a very, very special, highly elevated soul, but they have a very low level garment, which makes this soul struggle in expressing itself outside within the world, outside of itself. Some people have a low level soul, but their garment is wonderful, so it makes that soul very easy to, those souls are very easily accessible. I'll give you an example. You want to hear an example? Yeah. Some people, I'm not here to judge. This is just for us. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we can see this within ourselves. Some people naturally get in touch with their soul very easily. They learn a little bit of Torah, they're right away on fire. They get inspired very quickly, which means for them to access their soul, it's a very quick journey. It's a very thin layer and you're right, and you're right there by the soul. Some people, they can have a very, very powerful soul. But to get through to that soul, <laughs> it's a ton of bricks. You got to pull elephant teeth. You talk to them, you do it. Nothing inspires them. Nothing moves them. Once you get through to that soul, you may actually discover it's a very powerful soul. But to get in touch with that soul, <laughs> takes six months of, of banging. Understand? So that's this idea. There's a soul, there's a garment. The garment is determined by the parents. Parents create the garment for their child. But let's continue reading. But as for the divine soul itself, its quality is not influenced by the parents at all. Only God decides what type of soul we have. As we see, we clearly see that sometimes the soul of an inestimably great person will enter the child of a disgraceful, lowly person. Right? So there's no, there's no correlation. What's a good example of this? Of a very elevated soul coming into this, becoming the child of somebody who didn't deserve that soul? Abraham. Abraham was one of the greatest Jewish souls. And who was he born to? Terah, you know. The idol maker. And wasn't really, uh, you know, 
the paragon of of goodness and holiness and, and Let's conclude the final final paragraph. All this was stated by the Arizal in the Kutit Torah, Parshas Vayera, and in Taimei HaMitzvah's Parshas Voracious. And with that, we conclude chapter two. Okay, I want to summarize with you what is the core message I want you to finish chapter two with. I think the most important message of chapter two is is that you have a soul. You have a divine soul. You have a godly soul. And no Jew has to develop a godly soul. And no Jew gets gifted with a godly soul if they do enough. Every Jew, from the moment you are born to the moment you die, we all possess a godly soul. And that is the true value of a Jew. That's the true, that's the true identity of a Jew. It's like somebody will say, I'm a bad Jew, because I don't do, you know, oh, you know, I don't do this. I don't believe in this. I'm a bad Jew. People say that I'm a bad Jew. You know, talk about the Rebbe. One of the things that bothered the Rebbe the most was when Jews put themselves down. And they would always quote to them the opening words of chapter 2. You have a peace of God inside of you. How could you put yourself down? How could you not live with the power? Don't, don't look at yourself down. And we should never also put that in another Jew. Oh, that Jew, eh, they're nobody. They're lost. They're not really Jewish. Ever heard that also? That Jew, they're not really Jewish. Like in the sense of like, you know, yeah, they weren't the Jewish parents, you know, but... And they're not with the program. God forbid. We all have a godly soul. And the good news is, we have it already. We possess the goods. We, are, we all possess that power. And uh, all that's left for us to do is to get in touch with that power, unleash that power, and live with that power. Which, uh, the, which the Tanya is right here to help us walk through that. So in chapter 3 next week, we'll start learning... The anatomy, the inner structure of the soul. Which means if you could pick up the hood of the soul and just see all the wires and the moving pieces and how does it just how does it work? How does the soul work? Just quite fascinating. We'll start walking through that journey on chapter three. But now at least we know that we have a soul and we know the general identity of the soul. It's a piece of God. How the soul works and functions and how we could start manipulating the move, the parts of the soul. That's next week. By the way, just page 40. And the rest of your handout, there is a scholarly note that the Alter Rebbe wrote in the Tanya. Um, it's related to the end of part one of this chapter. We're not going to be reading it in class. We're not going to be studying these scholarly notes, which appear in many of the chapters. But if you would like, you can read it on your own. That could be your extracurricular mm -hmm. study. And um, I want to thank you all for joining. Thank this you. was wonderful. Thank you. God willing, next week as well on Zoom and in person. And in person, God willing, we'll be uh, we'll be doing food. And if any of you want to sponsor a week of Tanya, Tanya, please let me know. You guys want to hear a story? Yeah, sure. This end of Tanya is reminding me of a good story. It's a cute story. The Alter Rebbe had a son. The Alter Rebbe's son eventually succeeded him. He was the second Chabad Rebbe. His name was Rabbi Dovber. When he was a young man, this and Rabbi Dovber was an unbelievably uh, um, a very impressive young young man and a great leader as he got older. But even as a young man, he was very impressive. And even you know, and and the the the, the Hasidim of the Alter Rebbe of his father had tremendous respect for him and saw him as a leader already then. Shana, you want to come? Oh, Shana, say hi to Shana. Hi. hi. Okay. Shana. How are you, Shanes? 
Okay, this is the story. So Rabbi Dovber, before he was an official leader of the Chabad movement, a young man, he went over to one of the Hasidim of his father. And um, he told him off. Not, not to be mean to him, but he chastised him. And he said, you, as a chassid of my father, ought to look much better than you do. <laughs> Which means spiritually. Right? <laughs> Come on. You should, uh, you should be a better person for somebody who claims to be the chassid of my father. So this guy responded and said, oh yeah, big talker? Easy for you to say. Can you just imagine the holy intent and the sacredness of the moment when your parents uh, created you, the union that created you? Mm. Must have been one of the most holy moments ever in existence. And you were the result of that moment. <laughs> so, of course, you've got a holy soul and you've got an amazing garment. Versus me, you know who my parents were? They were simple nobodies, a bunch of Jewish peasants. One can only imagine what was already going on when they, their union that created me, and what do you think I got? I got some dusty, rusty old soul. You know, uh, or garment, at least. And the, gar right, saying, and, and the garment, for short, at the point of time. Right, I've, and, uh, you know, so you're, you're going to tell me, you know, you privileged, basically, you know, you the son of the privileged uh, <laughs> holy parents. And that response shook up this young Rabbi Dover. I feel like, you know, the, the man has a point. Meaning, you know, easy for me to talk. And actually much more is expected from me. And the author of it went over to this Jew who, who told back off his son and thanked this chassid. He said, thank you for making my son into a chassid. Which is <laughs> <laughs> a deep warning. He made my son realize that, no, life is about hard work. And uh, you can't take things for granted. He had a moment of truth when he heard those words from the chassid. The author said, thank you for making my son into a chassid. It's a cute little story that. Right. It's chapter two, right. dear friends. Todah. to all of you. And if you have any, by the way, I just want to tell you something. These tiny classes are very deep, and I know that you'll that you all have questions while we learn it. And I know that during the week, as these ideas just uh, percolate in your head, you'll have more questions. So I want you to always feel comfortable to email me your questions. And what I want to do is, God willing. Um, I'll address those questions at the beginning of the next class. So I think we could kind of always address any of the issues which uh, which we feel need to be addressed. And as well, always after the class. Ooh, Karen is asking a good question. What defines sanctity during the actual sexual union? Mm. That's a very, very good question. On the most simple level, on the most simple level, this is a class for itself. On the most simple level, she's not, she's not on right now. Is she? Karen's not on anymore, but that's okay. We can answer the question. I was wondering that myself. Yeah, it's a good question. Mm -hmm. well, on, on the most simple level, not just purpose, let's, let's get to it in a moment. On the most simple level, um, there's, you know, sexuality uh, can be abused to be an unbelievably crass experience um, to be a, a very unholy and a very debased, right? 
on the one hand that that the, the human power of sexuality can can be used to be the uh the lowest point of immorality and at the same time judaism teaches us you know, judaism it's a very it's very it's very powerful our religion which no other religion has this, at least to my understand to my knowledge is that the sexual union of a husband and wife is the most holiest moment and the, all blessings come to a marriage through the power of that moment and even god is present in that moment and it essentially is a holy moment unless it's abused so the most the most basic level of holy intent and doing it in a holy way is to not do it animalistically to not do it just for selfish uh, not to do it just selfishly for, for for selfish lust or just for selfish pleasure but to as much as possible do it as a, as an act of connection as an act of uh, of real intimacy right let's use that word I'm going to Bobby, I want to fly the tactic. We're going to go to Bobby. Bobby. Um, that's the most simple level. To to do it to do it in the most sacred way, um, which which and to do it even physically in a way that represents the soul of what this moment really is. I'll give you a little example. I'll give you a little example. Jewish law says, it's a law. Um, and on the one hand, you look at this law and you're like, why would Judaism tell us to do that? Why would Judaism restrict us in this way? There's a law about sexuality, about intimacy. That ideally, it's a, it's a funny law. Jewish law tells us what general position there should be. It should always be face-to-face. Intimacy has to be done face-to-face, never back-to-back. You should never, one partner should never be looking, should never be facing the back of another one. So you could say, well, that's pretty controlling. <laughs> Judaism is even telling me what to do in my bedroom. <laughs> Why does Judaism say that? What's the significance of that law? When you're facing someone's back, that makes it impersonal. That's not called connection. This moment, part of making this moment holy is that it's not just being done for me. It's not being just because I have, you know, my desires that I want to do right now. It's, an, it's a moment of selfless connection of bonding, of true connection. That has to be done face to face. It's a powerful idea. Animals will always will always come together sexually and they'll never face each other. Right? right? Why? Because animals are not capable of intimacy. Only humans are. Only souls are. It's a very soulful moment. Intimacy is really a soulful moment of true connection between two soul partners. Back to back is no good. Judaism says that, that, that it kills the spirit. There's also another law, which is again, you look at it you're like, why would Judaism say that? When you understand the the when you understand that the soul of what this moment is all about, you see that the laws reflect that. The room should be dark. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean pitch black. It's dim. There should be no direct source of light upon you during intimacy. Why? The, the moment of intimacy is actually a moment to, tr- to try to transcend our physical barriers, to try to connect as deeply as possible. And, uh, and having our eyes, our, and having our, our physical senses somewhat toned down allows us to get in touch with that, to try to transcend what divides us. And by the way, the same token, Jewish law has a law that during intimacy, 
there's not a lot to be anything separating. It has to be skin on skin directly. Again, why, right? You ever heard of the famous stereotype of the hole in the sheet? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's totally, that's totally against Jewish law. Not, not, not only it's what we factually don't do, it's against Jewish law. There has to be this very deep moment of connection. This cannot be a selfish moment. So, on the most, so to get to that question, on the most simple level, that is what sanctity means. That we are transcending the animalistic element of what this moment could be, of a selfish, ego-based uh, experience, and trying to connect with, this, uh, with my spouse's soul on the deepest level possible, both physically, both emotionally, and spiritually. And then it's not just a physical act, it's not just a biological act, it becomes a very holy moment. It's a moment of two souls connecting. And when those two souls connect, that creates the potential for life. Two godly souls coming together to create another godly soul. What's more powerful than that? What's holier than that? Mm -hmm. So it's a lot about intent, it's a lot about getting yourself in the right frame of mind. Um, that's, uh, that's what this means, that's what this concept is. Good answer. Is that a good answer? Hillary says, wow. Yeah, I agree with you, Hillary. It is, it's very powerful. Thank you. Hi. Thank you. Good night. Thank good you. night, dear friends. Thank you. Thank you all for joining. Bye-bye. And we'll Have see you. Have a good week. Have a wonderful week. Have a good Shabbos. You too. See you, you too. all soon. All right. Thank you, Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Rabbi. <laughs> it was really beautiful. Take care, Shelly. We'll see you. Okay.